This podcast is brought to you by Killing Time Productions. And now it is time for the Ark of Rock. And to send this first episode off the right way, we're going to kick it off with a little intro. superstars, King Richard returned from exile to claim his throne, and from around the world the cry was, the king, the king, King Richard's back, long live the king, long live the king, King And that is how you kick off a podcast. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? I am your host, the fabulous, the one and only, some say unknown, Jared Cornelius. I am your host, and this is, I don't know if you caught it in the beginning, this is the Ark of Rock podcast. And I don't know if you've read any descriptions. If you're a listener, thank you. This is the very first episode, and I'd like to consider you one of my very first listeners. So I'm going to get real personal here for a second, all right? What this podcast is going to be about is basically what it means, is or what the title means, is uh, where it started, and I'm going to do full-length series over rock and roll bands of all types of genres. I'm going to be rubbing the clits of every rock nerd there is out there. I'm going to hit Southern Rock. I'm going to hit fucking Opera Rock. There's only like three bands in that genre, but I'm going to hit it. I'll do a Summer of Thrash series where I cover all the thrash metal bands from the Bay Area and New York alike, but... You can't start a history podcast about rock and roll without starting at the beginning. Now, most people, whenever you're talking, like it's always old white guys with white shirts and black ties. They don't quite fit telling you that Elvis Presley is the fucking king. No, he's not. Okay? Not in this podcast, he's not. Okay? In my podcast, Elvis Presley is a fucking footnote on America's ass. Okay? I can't. I can't stand hearing people call Elvis Presley the king of rock and roll. I honestly, it blows my mind considering that he start like he's literally started off seeing gospel music that he like that he heard on the radio, and every single song that he performed that was rock and roll he stole from some black artist that, you know, definitely wasn't given a fair chance to say the least. Yeah, we're gonna today's episode uh, segregation is gonna be a big part of everything we talk about considering that today's episode is labeled. Or, you know, I'm calling it the real three kings. The three kings of rock and roll. And in my opinion, you can't talk about rock and roll or the start of it without talking about these three guys. Uh, The first guy we're going to talk about, his name is Howlin' Wolf. Real name, Chester Arthur. Yes, like the president with the famous beard. Also famous for not really doing anything. 
Uh, one of the other guys is Chuck Berry. We're going to be going over him. He's going to be last. And then there in the middle, we're going to go over Little Richard. Now, you may be thinking, Jared, you got the jitters, all right? This is your first episode. You just did the order of the guys you're going to do out of order. And, you know, that might be true, but it doesn't really fucking matter now, does it? So, like I said, first off, we're going to do is Howlin' Wolf. He had in his catalog, and listen, I have spent two weeks listening to every single album. There's 48 in total between these three fucking guys, okay? Guys in the 50s, I don't know what it was. They all had 50 fucking albums apiece. Chuck Berry alone, between studio and live, had 25. He took me... I had I had to give it a break. I had to go fucking listen to Slayer or something because listening to that music will put you in the 1950s. Like, I kept suggesting to Cameron that we should go to a diner. We should go to... Like, why... Music like that makes me want to go to a diner. I don't know what it is. But, anyway... I listened to all 25 of his albums, and it took me a solid, I don't know, week, because I had to keep giving it breaks, and then uh, Howlin' Wolf had nine studio albums and only one live album, and if I could recommend, I would definitely listen to that live album, and it's fantastic. Um, and then Little Richard, he also only had one live album, but he had 12 studio albums, and Little Richard was, I mean... Chuck Berry and Little Richard, they lived a very long life, and they performed until the day that they died, or... I don't know how active Little Richard... Little Richard got weird towards the end of his life, but we will get to that. But now, what you've all been here for, we're gonna get into the history of rock and roll as told by me, Jared Cornelius, and if any of you got a problem with it, I don't care. I will not be held hostage on my own podcast. All right. So first, and also, I'm gonna address this right off the bat. I could literally start this whole, the first hundred episodes of this podcast could be, just be me going over old black blues artists and jazz artists of the, of the like, and country artists, if we really want to do prehistory of rock. But you know what? I'm not going to keep any of you noodle heads fucking attention doing that, because anything 1950 and back, or maybe even 1960 and back, is, it's old, man. Like, I don't, don't want to hear about that, man. Like, well, then, you know what? You have to, because you can't really have a history podcast without going to the start. So, I, I'm trying not to get angry. I'm also very excited, very excited. So, let's get started with our first king of rock, Mr. Howlin' Wolf. Howlin' Wolf, or the wolf as I'll be referring to him as, was born in West Point, Mississippi in 1910. This guy's fucking old. If he was still alive, he'd be 112 years old. Um, Real name is Chester Arthur, like I said, like the president. And don't worry, this won't turn into a president podcast. That will be coming out in like three years whenever, you know, the drugs really take over and I, I, I need something new. This podcast becomes too much. I have to hand it off for a while. It's going to get weird, and then I'll make a big comeback. No one will like it at first, and then, you know, I'll I'll get a new audience. But that's really forward thinking. Um, The wolf was born to a family of farmers. Wolf took to farming until the age of 18. Jesus Christ. When When a chance meeting with Delta Blues legend Charlie Patton. I'm not... I can't lie to you. Charlie Patton, he's one of those old blues guys that was just kind of like lucky to be around somewhere where someone could record him playing and it sounds like it was from afar so you know he's one of those guys i'm sure but um Patton was the inspiration behind the wolf's biggest tool his voice now 
I've had a few people ask me, a few rock and roll fucking legends out there, groovy fucking people, they ask me, hey man, like, I get Little Richard and Chuck Berry, but like, why Hal and Wolf? And I'll tell you why. Um, and I'll be honest, I've listened, like I said, I've listened to every single one of his albums in the last few weeks, and, and not a lot of his music is very rock and roll, like you can totally tell with uh, Chuck Berry and Little Richard. But his fucking voice is the biggest reason why I'm putting him in this, because like, he was, I mean, I could also say the same thing kind of like about James Brown, but this fucking guy, I mean, Howlin' Wolf was six foot four, 300 pounds. This guy could have started defensive line for the fucking Los Angeles Rams, okay? Um, he was huge, and he sounded like, go look up and listen to any of his music, and you will hear exactly what I'm talking about. This guy was fucking metal before metal was metal, okay? Metal back then was just, a uh, um, like, uh, iron or steel. It was like, if you said, hey, I like metal to somebody, they'd be like, well, what kind of metal are you speaking of, young sir? And, I, and then you'd have to, like, talk about different ores and fucking graphite and stalactites and shit like that, but, you know... That's also for the geology podcast I will be creating and like, you know, whatever. But his voice, like, it's like, it's so, it's literally, if I was to cast the devil in an animated film, I'd pick Howlin' Wolf's voice and the way he sings. Like, it is, it's almost, it's almost terrifying. Like, if you were to put it to, like, I would love to hear it behind, like, some death metal, like, a a death metal band backing up Howlin' Wolf. I think that would be fucking killer or be a train wreck, who knows, but. Moving on, Wolf's hard-driven rhythmic style on harmonica came when Alec Rice Miller, don't know why his nickname's Rice, it's a weird nickname to have, um, Sonny Boy Williamson married his half-sister Mary and taught him the ways of the harmonica. Um, Howlin' Wolf, it, I cannot ex- begin to explain to you how hilarious it is to see this giant man hold a harmonica. Because I am quite sure that his hands are the signs of size of frying pans, and a good smack to the side of your temple might render you unconscious. So to see him hold a tiny instrument like a harmonica is quite comical. Um, but that guy could play the fuck out of it. Um, you couldn't see it because his hands covered it the whole time. It might attribute to the sound of it, but uh, he was fantastic. And a lot of his music um, before a lot more uh, before his music became more like guitar driven. Um, the harmonica was, like, the the lead guitar of the band, and it's pretty fucking killer, dude. Like, you should totally check it out. Um, moving on, we got Howlin' Wolf's music career actually started in the 1930s. Yes, you heard that right, 1930s, when he was in his 20s in the 1930s. And what a lot of people don't know is Howlin' Wolf, and it was very uncommon back then, because I don't need to tell you as a white guy how hard it was for the early... Uh, uh, black citizens of this country to make it in the con- in America in the early 1900s. I don't need to explain that to you, so I'm not gonna white explain it to you. So I will say it was very uncommon for black families, unless it was more of like like Black Wall Street was a was a community of uh, wealthy black citizens that really took care of each other before the Tulsa Raids right happened in 1920, and then. Um, all those other <laughs> the terrible ones that happened. Um, but it was very uncommon for a black family to have money. And I can't... Like, Howlin' Wolf, like, his money, his own family money and his money helped, like, f- like fuel his music career and hit be- him be able to 
stop farming at such a young age and to pursue, pursue a musical career is because he had money and was able to, you know, be in the right places. Now, I'm not saying that he wasn't, like, he was totally, uh, you know, people probably didn't take him serious at first, but you also got to remember, this guy looks like, like you if you you could draw like if you drew, were to draw a goon for uh like you know a, a, a comical mobster guy like this guy is huge he's always in a suit that is a little too small which is kind of like you know like you were fucked there was no big and tall back then like he didn't have a choice he kind of had to uh wear what they could give him you know i'm pretty sure he wore the same suit that that fucking ed sullivan guy wore but anyway his music career started in the 1930s which is when most of his what would become his most because his f- most famous songs that people know and love today like smokestack lightning and spoonful which is my f- absolute favorite song sitting on top of the world like all those songs were written and performed in the 1930s but they weren't recorded until later like 20 years later in the 1950s early 1950s we will get to that though but um it started in the 1930s he was strictly at that time he was imitating the um the guy that taught him uh Charlie Patton he was imitating his style and only doing music that he did um at the time before he started performing his own music like and when he first started off like uh before he had the courage to play his own music cuz playing originals was like you know it's even to this day, like I played in a band and like a lot of people don't want to hear you sing, make us like sing a song, like, especially if they don't know who the fuck you are. So I imagine it wasn't any easier back then to play original and like, you know, you know, be a success with it. So he was being a, he was imitating Charlie Patton and, uh, he was also known for rocking a neck rack with his harmonica on it. And, uh, his band, he also was known for having one of the first electric guitars that anyone had ever seen in a music, in a band, um, because at that time, acoustic was literally, like, that's everything, like, it was what every, and a lot of his music is, like, it has that element to it, but, I mean, I, I personally think his music is much better with electric guitar in it, but, like, uh, in the 1930s, seeing an electric guitar, like, you, like, that right there shows that he had money, because I'm sure he had an either Gretsch or a Gibson or something, one of those big ass guitars and you know a guy like him he needs a big guitar anyway moving on by 1948 wolf had established himself as a dj he had a 15 minute radio station on sorry a 15 minute radio show on kwem in west memphis there wolf also found the sound that would define his career he'd finally put together a fully electric band fucking hell yeah dude that's what i'm fucking talking about Members of the band included the late, great Willie Johnson. Now, Willie Johnson, this guy, was the sound that really drove it home. Like, his guitar playing. Um, he was, re- like, him and Wolf were very, like, it was, it was literally a match made in heaven when they met each other. Like, Wolf was like, I like what you're throwing down, because that's what he sounded like. And Willie was like, I don't know what he sounded like, but I imagine he's like, yeah, I like what you're throwing down too, Wolf. And then they just fucking lightning hit and they fucking wrote, they played Stairway to Heaven before it actually was even a real song, probably. Anyway, Wolf didn't actually start recording, like I had said, until 1951 when Sam Phillips, that dirty fucking cocksucker, he's going to come up a lot later on whenever I do these little one episode series over standalone artists. He's a, he's a fucking snake. He's the guy that, um, while also being one of the most 
important record producers in music history. Um, because considering he was the owner and founder of Sun Records, which, you know, kind of had Elvis Presley, which, you know what, a lot of people are going to say, how are you going to not talk about Elvis Presley? Because fuck Elvis Presley, that's why. That's what I think, okay? He wasn't the king of nothing. The only thing time he was the king was when he was sitting on the shitter, all right? I don't want to hear about it. But anyway, Sam Phillips was the guy that pushed Elvis Presley and made him famous, and many other people, like Buddy Holly, I'm pretty sure, and a lot of famous people recorded there, and like, it was literally the size of the room I'm recording this podcast in, with egg crate filling all over the walls, and I imagine I have better equipment I'm recording on than they did, and somehow he made it fucking work, man, he was kind of a genius, but most geniuses are dickheads, that's all I can say. But Sam Phillips discovered the wolf whenever he first heard him on his own radio show, and you know how you know you know how big that is. You've got a fifteen minute radio show. I have a hard time fucking doing fifteen minutes of anything, let alone listening to a radio show. Like he had such a small window, and he got heard. And um, the next thing you know, Wolf had two hits on the radio with two separate record companies claiming to own his contract: Chess Records and Sun Records. Chess Records actually ended up winning the wolf like the rights to Howlin' Wolf's contract like they ended up winning it which Chess Records was actually the same record com- uh, company that Chuck Berry would later go on to be on but now living in Chicago Wolf's influence has changed the violent aggressions of the Memphis sides was being replaced with a Chicago backbeat you know blues jargon I'm not going to explain you and like you know if you really want me to get that in depth with stuff like when it comes to the technicalities of playing instruments um you're gonna have to email me and ask for that specifically because i don't feel like it um i promise i will answer emails though he also with (laughs) memphis sides was replaced with a chicago backbeat he was also hired he sorry he also hired who would become wolf's longest running bandmate Hubert Sumlin, and yes, I know, you're asking yourself, you're telling me, fucking guy named Hubert Sumlin is going to be a vocal, like a huge character in this short story of Howlin' Wolf I'm doing, because I am doing a a short version on these three guys, because I know you all want to get to the bands, and the full-length series, and all the sex drugs, and fucking rock and rolls, and the assholes, I know you want to get to it. We gotta do this first, though. This is like school. This is first day of school stuff. Um, but Hubert Sumlin was a badass guitar player. And, I mean, back in the day, like, you know, in the 1970s, I mean, I imagine whenever Ron Wood joined the Rolling Stones, everybody was all like, dude, like, can you imagine him and Keith Richards? I bet that this is what that was like whenever hubert sumlin joined up with willie johnson and fucking howlin wolf and the boys and then they really started fucking you know lighting places on fire but sumlin first appeared as a rhythm guitarist on a lash session and within a few years his style had matured and he took on role as lead guitarist sumlin's style had been described as an angular attack due to the fact that he played almost no chords behind wolf even soloing through vocals the best way that I can describe that is for any of you that like Jimi Hendrix out there, you notice how he doesn't really play chords. He's just kind of like the whole fucking time. That's what this guy did. So this guy's like the first fucking Hendrix, man. That's what they're saying. 
Um, <laughs> that's what they're saying, man. Anyway, behind Wolf, even soloing through vocals. Wild skitterings up and down frets, single notes, blah, blah, blah. If Willie Johnson was Wolf's second voice in his early career, then Hubert Sumlin was the one that picked up the gauntlet for the rest of Wolf's days. Sumlin was with the Howlin' Wolf. The Howlin' Wolf. He was with Howlin' Wolf until he stopped um, performing and making music in the ni- 1975 or 1976. Like, he was with him till the end. And he even would go on. But we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. I'm jumping ahead. I'm sorry. Um... In the 1950s, where the Wolf's music really got big, especially in 1956, when he topped R&B charts again with the songs Evil and Smokestack Lightning. That's how, you know, Howlin' Wolf could have been a black death metal singer. I'm just just saying, not like a black guy that sings death metal. I mean, like the genre black metal. I have to specify that because I don't, like I said, email me, but I don't want... Hateful emails coming my way, all you fucking nerds out there. I am going to mess up every once in a while, okay? I am human. You know, it happens. But in 1960, Wolf teamed up with head chess writer Willie Dixon and for the next five years only did songs written by Willie Dixon. These collabs helped the surge he had in the 1960s. It also helped that many... Upcoming rock bands had hits covering his tunes. That right there is one of the biggest reasons I'm covering this guy. You cannot go through the 1960s and listen to all those fucking rock bands and see not see them covering Howlin' Wolf's music. The Rolling Stones covered him. The Led Zeppelin covered him. All of those big bands, they covered him because Howlin' Wolf was fucking heavier than anything else they'd ever heard in their lives. And also... You know, blues. Like, if you asked Howlin' Wolf if he thought he was rock, he'd probably say, I'm a blues man. There's something like that. Moving on. Speaking of the Rolling Stones, Red Rooster was one of the hits that Willie Dixon wrote that would be covered by famous rock band the Rolling Stones. Fucking Mick Jagger and the boys. In 1965, the Stones were slotted for an ABC appearance for the ABC TV rock music show Shindig. That sounds so fucking lame. The Stones had one stipulation, that Howlin' Wolf be a special guest, and the amount of white heads that turned when those fucking skinny, small, white British guys suggested this over here, out of their minds. That's what they were thinking. But that was their stipulation. Like, these guys literally had a fucking hit and covered it, and actually, this happened to the the Wolf a lot in his career, where... other bands would cover his music, and this happened to a lot of black artists back in the day, because, like, a big point, like, with me giving these three guys the exposure they deserve is because, like, if you were a black artist in the 1940s to the 60s or whatever, even if you did, like, like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, and Howlin' Wolf all made music in the 1960s, and it's just, it rocks just as hard as the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, uh fucking uh led zeppelin it rocks just as hard as those guys and like most of those bands were covering these guys and they just they weren't ever given a chance and they never were labeled as rock and roll they were always labeled as r&b or blues or whatever because music uh, believe it or not they segregated music like it was basically segregation in music was like elvis presley and all of his bullshit is labeled as rock and roll 
but uh, Chuck Berry, who rocks way harder and was way more of what I would call a rock musician, was labeled as blues, R&B, whatever. Like, he gets credit now and would go on to get credit by all those people, but, like, in the industry, like, people like Howlin' Wolf, Chuck Berry, and especially Little Richard, which we'll get to him next, um... They just, they weren't really given the shot that they deserved, and they weren't given the push that they would deserved and the exposure, and with, even with all these people, like, praising him, and, like, this says right here, like, this Rolling Stones sat at his feet on national television in 1965, while Howlin' Wolf performed a rocking version of the fantastically, like, it's so good, the song How Many More Years, which was actually, um, a song that... Led Zeppelin would go on to appropriate called How Many More Times, which is really fucking good, too. It's one of my favorites. And the Rolling Stones were sitting at this guy's feet with millions, millions of people viewing. And because of that, Howlin' Wolf, he never forgot the respect the Stones showed him and spoke highly of them until he died. Maybe he even went on to collab with a couple of them. Maybe we'll fucking see. We will see. By 1964... Dixon and Wolf parted ways. Oh, fucking sad. It's a breakup. And Howlin' Wolf was back making his own music. Killing Floor, which is great, being one of his biggest hits from this era was huge for him. Like, that's like, you know, whenever you break up with someone and, like, it was a bad relationship and, you know, you just fucking, like, nowadays you just post, like, the fucking hottest picture of yourself out there or whatever you do. And... It's just like everyone just fucking notices you. And they're like, oh shit, he did that? Yeah, hell yeah, he did. And that's what Killing Floor was for him. It was one of his biggest hits. And it was also um, one of the biggest ones to come for him since uh, he, him and Willie Dixon left parted as his writing partner. Because like I said, Willie Dixon, everything he wrote, Hall- like everything Howlin' Wolf performed is only music that Willie Dixon wrote and composed. So it's a big, big time for Howlin' Wolf to be back on his own. He's fucking really independent if you think about it. This six foot four behemoth of a man, out and fucking looking for looking for something. I don't know. Anyway, um, the song was so good. Led Zeppelin again took it and put it on their second album, which it's called the Lemon Song. It's fucking great. And Led Zeppelin too. I can't recommend an album enough. I would go listen to that. Um, and they put it on there, and as they did with the other of his few, like, Led Zeppelin alone is one of the biggest reasons that I'm doing Howlin' Wolf, because not only did the Stones cover him a lot, Led Zeppelin did, and Led Zeppelin covered it because they probably knew, um, this guy's fucking heavy, like, this guy rules, like, we, if we hope we can be as heavy as that, and, you know, the rest is history, but that is the Lemon song that they would go on to cover, and, um... And we're coming to the end of the 60s, everybody. Fucking sex, dr- free sex, drugs, and rock and roll has been going or- going around. Women have been leaving men. Men have been crying and growing beards for three years and not showering. Not much has changed. But at the end of the 1960s, Howlin' Wolf's material was being recorded by artists such as The Doors, The Electric Flag, The Blues Project, Cream, and Jeff Beck. This brought Wolf an audience. One, this this brought Wolf an audience he had never had before, a young white one. His which you know, you gotta give credit where credits due. Like if you're ever needing to push a, a a form of music that is questionable or looked down upon in society, 
push it to the young white kids. They'll fucking eat it up. They've all, they need something to rebel against, don't they? His last big payday came when he went to London to record. The result? An all-star masterpiece of blues music with a lineup consisting of Eric Clapton, Steve Winwood, both of the band Blind Faith, Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts on the rhythm section, which both were at the time and would be the rhythm section for the Rolling Stones. And fun story about that, actually. uh, And this album was recorded like... Howlin' Wolf was old by the in like the early seventies. He was born in nineteen ten, so he was. What would he be at that time? Almost he would be si- almost. My math is so bad right now. I know all you fucking math nerds out there screaming at me. He I mean almost sixty years old because I'm pretty sure he died at the age of sixty six. So. That's right. I'm sorry, brain fart. It's hard to think with headphones on and a microphone in your face. It's kind of like if you're trying to do like a bench press set and someone's got their dick in your face. It's kind of like that. That kind of pressure. But anyway, but uh, cool story about <laughs> the cool story about Howlin' Wolf uh, putting together this band. I mean, Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood. That's a no-brainer. Um, and then he brought in Bill Wyman because Bill Wyman was a always had been a big studio musician as a bass player, as most bass players are, because you know they're sad saps. They don't like the road. Um, they like they're the babysitters of the band. That's what I've that's what I've noticed. The bass players are, and um, and originally on drums, uh, they had brought in Ringo Starr from the Beatles. Ugh. And they brought him in, and he originally was going to be the drummer on this album, which I believe is just Howlin' Wolf, the London BBC sessions, really fucking good. Um, it's probably my favorite thing that he did. And um, at first, whenever they were going, he did not like Ringo Starr, and I do not blame him. But he did not like Ringo Starr because he just it was his vibe. He didn't like his style. He didn't like the way he was playing. He didn't. It, it didn't fit. And like Howlin' Wolf almost gave up for the day. And that's whenever that little fucking skinny white guy over there from the Rolling Stones, Bill Wyman, was like, hey, I know somebody. Uh, we can get him in here today if you'd like. And it's fucking, they get in Charlie Watts. He's like, hello. Where's my drums? And, like, they, they take him over to the drums, and he sits down, and he smirks. And then, as far as I can tell, and we will cover him in length whenever I do a series. Uh, it's going to be a long series, too, over the Rolling Stones. A lot of people revered Charlie Watts as one of the best fucking sit-in blues drummers that you could find. Like just the, it, and if you listen to the Rolling Stones, you can tell he's just so fucking the timing and his ability to stay in the pocket is just it's incredible. And um, and he got down, and I guess Helen Wolf really liked what he was throwing down, and uh, decided to record with him as the drummer. So imagine that man, fucking Helen Wolf, he's up there, and then like behind him, he's got. Four guys that are all below the height of 5'7", and they're all British, and, you know, fucking, they think you're God, and it's, that must be fucking cool, man, I gotta say. But we are coming to the end of Hal and Wolf, unfortunately. After a few strings of, well, a few strings is like, uh, a few strings is really, like, you know, underselling. Uh, the fact that he had survived numerous heart attacks, as well as kidney issues. Like, he had been having issues with that 
like in the old as he got older which i imagine you know as you get older and you're that fucking big you know your system's like hey buddy you know you know we've had a good run but like we're tired buddy like we're tired and because of that like he really um he just couldn't like he was limited to i believe it was uh six shows a month or something like that he was very he was limited to like how much he was able to perform because it was just killing him and apparently though like the last few concerts like you know that you could tell that he was in pain but every once in a while the fire would come and you know he'd be up there fucking scaring everybody and wiping the sweat off his off his brow and just being a fucking badass but uh unfortunately for the wolf in, in 1976, on January 10th, after a failed operation, Chester Arthur, a.k.a. the Howlin' Wolf, was dead. It's, it's, uh, they knew it was probably... There wasn't very much time for him. And, uh, you know, it's it, it, what's really cool and what I've heard people like talk... Like, what I've read about and everything is just like how... His last shows before he actually died were some of his best because he really probably just gave it all he had before his body just broke down because I'm pretty sure he was in assisted care in his final days before he actually went to the hospital to have an operation done on him and it just didn't work, unfortunately. But in 1980, the Howlin' Wolf... I keep wanting to put the in front of him like it's a band name or something. Howlin' Wolf was inducted into the Blues Hall of Fame in 1980 and into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991. He only had to wait five years to get into the fucking Rock and Roll Hall of Fame after it actually was invented. And uh, Eddie Shaw kept Howlin' Wolf's band, The Wolf Gang, together for several years. So I would def- I would check him out. It's really cool. It's 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 Howlin' Wolf's band. It's fucking awesome. And. Uh, as if his music career wasn't proof enough, his face was actually put on a postage stamp. And, you know, clearly marking him as a permanent part of American history, not just in music, but just in society. Because, I mean, I'm, I really only, I just scratched the surface with him because, you know, I'm trying to cover three guys in one episode so I can move on. And, like I said, later on, I will do side stories where I um, talk about you know, more solo artists, because like I said, I could probably do a whole fucking podcast called The Blues, and only talk about blues artists, I could probably have more content on that, because there's guys like Blind Willie Nelson, and Blind Willie Johnson, and Almost Blind Pete Jackson, you know, there's all those blind blues singers that, you know, they never made it, they never got famous, because they couldn't find their way to the recording studio, how sad, anyway, (laughs) rest in peace, Alan (laughs) anyway, Next up, I think you may have gotten a little snippet of him. He is by far probably my favorite artist out of these three based off his music alone. Just because, like, he's just on a whole nother level. And his song, um, The King of Rock and Roll, which is what I kicked the podcast off with, with, um, which that is by Little Richard. It's off his album, King of Rock and Roll. Um, I mean, that, that right there, like, that just, uh, it says enough right there. He really, in my opinion, is the real, like, Little Richard is the real king of rock and roll. It is Little Richard. It is not Elvis Presley. 
and I'm going to get into why I believe that, but just a few quick things. Like, it's not just rock with Little Richard. It's literally pop culture. It's American history. It's everything. Every like, And you go through the genres. You cannot... I can go through most genres and point out, like, everything in it that, you know, just shows how Little Richard had a touch in it. Like, like there's no... We'll get, we'll get into it, but... Anyways... Little Richard. Now, anyone that knows anything knows Little Richard is a founding father of rock and roll. See, told you. If you love anything about the flamboyance of rock and roll, then you have Little Richard to thank, said Dan Auerbach of the Black Keys. Great band. Little Richard's influence can be seen across every genre due to his style-bending lifestyle bro and he broke every barrier possible and rooted itself in the foundation of america the beatles prince glam metal the kinks uh credence clearwater revival none of them exist without little richard and i feel very confident in saying that like if you think prince was shot like imagine being prince in the 1950s that's basically what little richard was but he was like uh the tasmanian devil fingers on the piano he's fucking it's fantastic music i I can't i can't uh stress that enough um but none of those bands exist or artists uh, elton john there's no elton john without little richard elton john i've and i've always said this is just white little richard but not as good that's what i've always said um anyway (laughs) i'm sorry elton john and I think it goes with saying, like, a good... And I, I'm going to have to give Elvis a little credit here, but Chuck Berry was the storyteller and the father of rock and roll music. As it would, like, go on, like, the modern... Like, how it would sound going forward. Elvis made it popular, and that's because he was fucking foolish because he's a white guy. Anyway, but make no mistake, Little Richard was the archetype of rock music make no mistake it is little richard he's the king of rock and roll you heard the song you heard the song at the beginning of the episode don't fucking argue with me argue with your mom i don't give a fuck anyway born richard wayne penniman on december 5th 1932 in macon georgia little richard should i call him richard or should i say little richard every time i'm gonna call him richie richie was one of fucking 12 children (laughs) What is it with old artists and, like, all these fucking kids? Like, you, like I thought people fucked a lot now. They must have really been fucking back in the day. His father was a bootleg. And I know, I know, birth control. I know, I know. It's a joke. It's a funny podcast. Anyway, his father was a bootlegger and accused his son of being gay while also not supporting his music. What? A, a grown man in the 1940s and 50s with his gay son didn't approve of his lifestyle or anything he did? Whoa, what? That's going to be a arc of rock podcast. Shocker. Shocker alert. Anyway, because of all that, Rich left home at 13. I called him Rich that time. Note that. And moved in with a white family in 1945. Now, I hate to break this to you... Uh, People that I see, and I know, and I listen, I know who liked the post, the, the Facebook page, and I know who liked my tweets about this podcast, and I, you know, I know, but, uh, I hate to break it to you. 
all that fucking bullshit metal music you listen to, all that rock music, whatever you listen to. And I like, I don't mean to call metal music bullshit, but I'm talking about like that one band that's called like Parkway Drive and then that other one, the Sounds of Cyrus, whatever they're called. I hate to break it to you, but none of that exists without country music. Yeah, I know, I know. I hate to be the one that breaks it to you, but country music is a huge part of rock music. It's a bit huge part of it. I mean, and I'll explain that more on the Chuck Berry part of this episode, but yeah, I mean, country music and blues, I mean, you've mixed those two together with a little rhythm and blues and jazz with the speed of jazz. That's rock and roll right there, baby. That's rock and roll, bitch. You've been educated. Moving on. Now, when Richie heard country and blues, it was over. It was all fucking over. It was all over but the, but the shot. You know what I mean? Like, I remember hearing country for the first time and then changing the radio. It took me years to get into it. I also I have a cutoff year for country music. I won't listen to anything that came out after 1980. Now, you can send all the whatever. I can live without it. Let's just say that if it came out after 1980. I can live without it. In 1951, Little Richard landed his first record deal Woo! that's fucking awesome man i wish i could land a record deal richard became little richard when he was only 15 years old this guy was fucking trailblazing you know what i mean he's 15 years old he's gay he's got a, a very uh colorful hairdo he's got a he wore a pompadour before the pompadour was a pompadour that's what i heard and he had glitter on his face and a nice dream mustache and he wore fancy colored suits like this guy i mean this guy was a fucking character all these other people who were all wearing like gray pants and gray shirts and gray belts and gray shoes and black hats like that was the time of that like this guy was like looking like a peacock out there and um 15 years old he took the name from other artists with same with the same moniker Little Esther and Little Milton. Now, I know those sound like two little orphan children without parents, which would make them orphans, obviously. But I know Little Esther and Little Milton, they definitely sound like either orphan, British orphan children or two kids that are missing in the 1800s. And that's what, you know, they have on the flyers outside of the saloons or whatever. Anyway, he took his, uh, the little, it's kind of like how now it, I'm going to, uh, piece the uh, piece the puzzle together and for you right here. Uh, it's kind of like when Lil Uzi Vert and Lil Yachty probably took the Lil from Lil Wayne or whoever was first. The Lil this, but this was whenever they pronounced the back whenever America pronounced words the full way. Little, little. Anyway, he learned his piano style from Escarita. Escarita. A South Carolina singer who wore a pompadour. And Richard's early career was tame compared to his later work due to him fearing his rock wouldn't be liked. And how, what a shame it was. Because if I was there in 1956, I would have fucking rocked with little Richard, man. I would have done it. But by 1956... He took a job washing dishes, which is not a rock and roll job. Well, you know what? I guess it is. All you dishwashers out there, I want you to send me how many of you, and I want you to be honest, this is a judge for you, how many of you were on cocaine? I want to know. And I know you're drinking back there. 
I have many family members that worked in the service industry. I know what goes on behind the grill. That could be another podcast. I know I've pitched like three or four already, but I'm telling you right now, I know what goes on back there. But write in, please. Um, But he took a job washing dishes at a Greyhound bus station after his father had been murdered and had to support his family. What a bummer. You think you're about to be fucking the next uh, little Esther. You've made it. You're fucking, you're just out there moving your hips, listening to piano music, Descarita in South Carolina, and you find out your father's been murdered, which I've read, and I cannot find any information on that. Like, I don't know why his father was murdered. I don't know who did it. I don't know. Little Richard didn't seem to mind, so maybe we shouldn't fucking mind. It's none of our business. I'm not here to do murder investigations i'll leave that to fucking fat white guys with podcasts of their own which i guess i am too but i'm fucking cool anyway and also jobs washing dishes at a greyhound bus station that has been just like i why is there why are you washing dishes at a at a greyhound bus station do they have food at bus stations do they why do they have a kitchen and why is there sinks in order to wash dishes there like i don't it doesn't make sense to me but i just think that's a 1956 job i don't think that job exists anymore anyway so after his father had been murdered Um, this was a real low point for little Richard, as I can imagine it would be pretty hard to have a father be murdered, and then you have to just support a family of 13 other people, which I guess is now technically 11, because, like I said, his father had been murdered. Anyway, during this low point, he sent a tape titled, Tutti Frutti, to Specialty Records in Chicago. After that, the rest is history. He instantly shot the Elvis level, if not farther than Elvis level. Elvis Presley, I'll go on record right now, and any of you can fucking at me if you want. Elvis never did a song better than Tutti Frutti. I don't give a fuck what you think about the title, and I don't care what you think about the music. No song Elvis Presley ever did was better. I don't want to hear about it. Especially considering he did a song called Blue Hawaii. Yeah, that's fucking real good. Anyway. Richard, um, and later in life, you know, Little Richard, he, um, so he was born in 1932, and he lived until, I mean, I think he died within the last six years, and, uh, he really got, um, and I could really, I could do a whole series over just Little Richard, um, but, like, uh, he, he really kind of stopped being a musical figure, as he got late, like, you know, later on, it was just more of, like, you know, he did, like, a lot of, he did rock and roll movies, and he did a lot of, uh, like, he did a lot of, uh, appearances on television, like, I'm pretty sure he was on The Nanny at one point, which I used to watch with my mother all the time, fantastic show, I love Fran Drescher, she's a bad bitch, um, but, like, his albums in the 70s, man, like, they were like it's literally like most of these guys their music is so tame almost except for i don't think little richard was tame at all but like so so much of their music was just like they were being held back especially like chuck berry but like in the late 60s early 70s and on whenever they had freedom to do what they wished it was real like good rock and roll man like it doesn't i don't understand you know, how it wasn't, like, even, like, with all the music I've always consumed, and I've always heard people, like, even Scott Ian from Anthrax have always said there's no Anthrax without Little Richard, um, I've just, I've never, 
like with all my research and like just listening to music I've done from bands from the 70s and 60s, I've just I've never these guys never seem to interweave with each other and it doesn't make any sense because like none of that music exists without these fucking guys, especially a guy like Little Richard. So the fact that you know, can you imagine having all these little white British guys, which was face it, all those like all the first big rock stars in the 60s were all little white British guys and just imagine having all these, seeing all these guys have so much success doing your music or talking about your music, and you just still, like, you're playing shitty little fucking barn grills in, in the point in Iowa or Indiana, wherever that place is. Like, you're still, like, getting gigs like that, but the Beatles are playing Wembley Stadium. And I'm pretty positive that without Little Richard and the song Tutti Fruity, John Lennon never would have picked up a fucking guitar and asked his mom to drive him to band practice every day. So, I don't know. I've always, like, the... I've never understood that. And I've really, like, after reading about all this stuff going, like, and all this, and I will... I'll. I'll drop a link or something to all the biographies that I read online. I'm working on getting real copies of books because I'm going to need them for when I do real series. But, um, anyway, I just, like, I, I really, you really, when you, you have to really look deep into it to realize, like, everything has always just been so, like, especially back in the mute, the segregation in music and how it's always been apparent that all these black artists and everything, they were always the first to ride these waves and would basically just be elbowed off and boxed in, like, boxed, like, they'd just be basically thrown off their own wave and they'd have to go create a new one. So I don't, I you know, it's just insane. And with uh, Little Richard, he just really, he really didn't get the credit he deserved. He was what, he should have gotten every ounce of, of, appreciation that Elvis Presley got in my opinion I truly think that Little Richard is just much better in my opinion but like anyway but in the 1970s Little Richard got busy um doing like rock like he was he was making a respectable living in the rock oldies circuit you know he was always known to be you know given his fantastically uh, flamboyant performances. He's got sweat pouring down his face. He's wearing all these faint, like fancy suits and everything. And um, apparently, that like in the seventies is whenever he uh, picked up a little drug problem, and you know he went a little wild. But the flamboyance is what kept him, you know, like relevant. I guess it wasn't about his music mostly. He was more of just a figure, and. Uh, and of course he he's gay. I mean he later on in his life he denounced homosexuality a little before he died because you know he was Christian. He turned back to his Christian values and everything. And but he was always like very flip-floppy about it. I truly don't think he was he could ever just come out and say um you know I'm a gay man and I'm gay. I you know I, I'm gay. I mean he even but he did say stuff like, you know, I love gay people. I believe I was the founder of gay, which is just like the founder of gay. I would like to know who that is. If anybody out there with an extensive history on the on gay, please email in and give me something I can read or like 
just send as many words as it'll allow you. I'd love to know who discovered the real gay. Maybe it was Little Richard. Who knows? Um, he said, I love gay people. I believe I was the founder of gay. I'm the one who started to be so bold telling the world. Uh, you got to remember my dad put me out of the house because of that. And, you know, he said, <laughs> I used to take my mother's curtains and put them on my shoulders. And I used to call myself, at the time, the Magnificent Ones. Which is, you know, a f- pretty cool name. It's a pretty good nickname. Um, and he wore makeup and, like, like, dude, this guy, I'm telling you, he was Prince in the 1950s. Imagine being a young, gay, black, androgynous, like, teenager playing this devil's music what it was called and i would just love to hear a band like cannibal corpse in the 1950s those people would have had the national guard in there shooting those fuckers down like then you'd have guys like me like fuck yeah that fucking rules man but um and the only reason like i feel like that is a big deal because like that was always like a one of his big uh you know him being all flamboyant and you know the way i've used the word flamboyant quite a bit to describe him but it really is the best way because it, i mean and it obviously it, it wasn't about whether he was gay or not but obviously it was a huge deal for him and people always badgered him about it and he like he would change his answers and everything and later on in life before he died he uh he said god jesus he made men Men, he made women, women, you know, and you've got to live the way God wants you to live. So much unnatural affection. So much of people just doing everything and don't think about God. So basically, it sounds like he was like, I've sucked a lot of dicks. I've seen a lot of men's assholes. I better fucking pray for forgiveness. That's probably what he did. So, and then, you know, he said that. That's how my interpretation of it. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrrong. But, like... It might be because of how old of an artist he was, but none of that really fucked with his uh, his mystique or anything. Like he always, um, he was always seen as just like a a huge uh, polarizing public figure. And every time you saw him, you just had to turn your neck and be like, hmm, "Who's that guy?" Like that's what everybody always did. You know, he's a very neck breaking guy. So, but in the years before his death, Little Richard, who was by then based in Nashville, still performed periodically. On stage, though, the physicality was just gone. He had hip replacement surgery in 2009, which rendered him only being able to perform sitting down at the piano, but his rock and roll spirit never left him. Fuck yeah. But he would say things like, I'm sorry, I can't do it like it's supposed to be done, he told an audience in 2012. And the audience screamed back in encouragement. He said, with a little, with a very little Richard squeal, Oh, you gonna make me scream like a white girl! <laughs> I didn't know what that was going to say before I said that. That's hilarious. But uh, but then, yes, sadly, I believe in 2017, Little Richard would be dead. And I'm pretty positive it was... Oh, sorry. I'm fucking... I said the wrong year. Uh, he died in 2020, which would have made him 79 years old, I believe. Um... 87. I I think I have dyslexia whenever I put a microphone in front of my face. Anyway, he had he died at the age of 87. He lived a long life. He looked fantastic for his age. You know, he kind of looked like if uh, Liberace had a pencil mustache and a really bad wig that my grandma would wear. But it looked good on him. So, rest in peace, Little Richard. And that's Little Richard for you right there. <laughs> and finally... This is fun, isn't it? We're having a lot of fun. You know? 
I'm sitting here, I'm telling y'all like the history of this shit, and you're just sitting there listening, loving it, loving me. You're what you want more of me, less of what I'm talking about. But that's not what I need you to do. I know it's hard to get you know off track and not focus on what we're talking about but you have to pay attention otherwise how can you tell people the things that i've read other people tell me about the things that i'm telling you how will you be able to do that you can't all right finally which most of these episodes that i'll do going forward because like i'll have a lot more research i'll need to do i'm still discover i'm still deciding what band i should do first um i'll put a poll on twitter and facebook later between who i'm thinking about doing um which I really don't think this podcast will have a chronological order. It's just like these first few series I'm going to do is really just going to try to lay the foundation. And then later on, I'll break off into genres and the tree of rock and like, you know, and how fucking sappy that thing drips. You know what I mean? If that makes any sense. But, and like I said, I'm really, I, I am just scratching the surface barely on these three guys and they deserve so much more. But I just, I... I really, I know you guys want to get to the rock band, so let's uh, finish this up with the, with the man behind the sound of rock and roll. This guy, he's the father of rock. I will say, Little Richard's the king. Chuck Berry, he's the fucking father of it. He he busted the nut in the womb of, of roll, and he fucking together created rock. And roll, anyway. And uh, he's and like that's what many consider him as. Keith Richards. I mean, the guy almost pulled Chuck Berry's pants down and sucked his dick at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He loves him so much; it's incredible. So who was he? Well, he had an early start in music as a child in church, of course. I mean, who the fuck didn't? I performed Silent Night as the lead singer in a church choir performance as a child. So you could say that I also had a start in church choirs as a schoolboy. As a teen, he was sent to prison, big jump, for armed robbery. He began producing hits in the 50s and went on to become one of the most influential figures in the history of rock and roll in rock music and America. So, who is he? Chuck Berry. Well, he was born Charles Anderson Berry on October 18, 1926 in St. Louis, Missouri. And you know, if you listen to Chuck Berry sing, he's got a very nice voice. I imagine that's how most people sound from Missouri. Like that, That's how I imagine most people sound from there. Um, his parents were named Martha and Henry Berry. Um, they were the grandchildren of slaves and were among many... They were among the many of African Americans who migrated from the rural south in search of employment after World War I, which I'm sure his father fought in. I don't know. I should have put it in the outline. Who knows? But it might be important. He might be a veteran. If that is so, Henry Berry, I salute you. Thank you for your service. Chuck was one of six children. Jesus Christ. I have two brothers, and I feel like three's a lot. Little Richard was part of 12 Chuck was one of six. It's insane. Helen Wolf. I don't. I didn't read anything about siblings with him. Maybe that's why he had money. Who knows? Anyway, Chuck was one of six children in the Barry household. Aww, there are a bunch of berries. Bunch of berries running around. Well, oh, those are the Barry children. <laughs> As a child, Chuck Barry enjoyed doing carpentry work for his father. And that's a little. I mean, five and six is a bit young for a child to be doing carpentry work. I believe. Don't you think? I definitely wouldn't want to build a table i'm not quite sure what it is that you know i'm not quite sure what it is that carpenters do i'm just kidding i know what carpenter i'm not a fucking idiot anyway 
He also showed a strong interest in music and began singing in the church choir at the age of six. He's already had a lot happen in his life. Oh, yeah, this one story is, uh, um, like, he'd never seen a white person. He lived in such a highly segregated area that, like, in his all-black commu- neighborhood, he never saw a white person until a fire was set to a building nearby, and a group of all-white firefighters came and put it out, and, uh, you know, I imagine he probably screamed and turned around when he saw those white motherfuckers and, and uh, screamed in horror and uh you know ran away and asked his dad who who's who's those people and like he was like those are white people son and he was just like oh and that's probably how that went anyway but he showed a strong music and uh like he began singing in the choir at six and in high school barry sang jay mcshan's uh, confess in the blues which is a really good song it's old it sounds old it sounds like your grandma talking to you and uh, he performed, and he actually, and the administration was not a fan of this performance. They were horrified, and they listed, and they uh, were quoted as saying it was crude and whatever. And I'm just like, oh my god, go go listen to Jay McShan's "Confessing the Blues," and you tell me if you think that's fucking crude. All right, like there's like I've listened to songs with like album covers that are more crude than that, but. Uh, the kids were really digging it, apparently. The performance actually sparked his interest in learning guitar and began studying with local jazz legend Ira Harris. And you know that that guy was a cool dude. You know, he everywhere he walked, he had fucking open-toed sandals and a backwards beret or whatever. And he's like, hey, how you doing, Chuck? And he's like, I'm doing good. How you doing, Ira? He's like, I'm doing pretty all right. And everywhere he went, he had the Seinfeld bass line playing behind him. Anyway, later now, and then we're you know we're getting into the the late teens when I I also you know became quite a troublemaker, quite like our hero in this story here, Chuck Berry. So much of a troublemaker that in 1944, at the age of 17, Chuck Berry was arrested in Kansas City for going on a robbing spree and was sentenced to 10 years with his buddies. Of which he would only serve three. Now, to explain what happened here, um, one day, Chuck was uh, with his buddies, and they decided, which what you did back in the 1940s, that they were going to hop in a car and uh, drive to California from St. Louis, Missouri. And um, apparently, according to them, these fucking teenagers... They came across a pistol abandoned in a parking lot in Kansas City. They left St. Louis and only got to Kansas City and they were going to California. Talk about a fucking failed trip. Anyway, they found a pistol in an abandoned parking lot and seized by a terrible fit of youthful misjudgment decided to go on a robbing spree. And, uh, you know, they they robbed a bakery, a clothing store, and a barbershop. And then they stole a car and were arrested by highway patrolmen. But... Yeah, I, I've i never just found a gun. If you have, please write in. I'm encouraging all of you, all 57 of you potential listeners, to write in. I don't care what you say. Just write in. I'll talk to you. But, you know, him, he was, you know, that. but the thing is with this, and I'm sure it has something to, you know, do with race, you know, big fucking, big uh, surprise. But, like, they were first-time offenders and, you know, minors, so... Them getting 10 years, is a, that was the maximum penalty for something like this. So, the fact that they got 10 years for that, that's insane. But, you know, 
it, it's it, it's not it. I went to jail whenever I was 18, and I'll tell you what, I've only been pulled over twice in my life, and one time was for accidentally running a stop sign, and the other time was for having an expired tag, so I've never been pulled over, and it's been six years since that, knock on wood, but that's just got to suck to spend, you know, you're 17 to 20, so you probably got out when he's 20 or 21, um, actually, he was released on his 21st birthday, um, on October 18th, so, you know, but hey, he was able to drink as soon as he got out, that's pretty good, and he returned to St. Louis, where he worked for his father's construction company business, or whatever, and, <laughs> company business, and part-time as a photographer, and as a janitor at a local auto plant, this guy has fucking three jobs, this podcast feels like a second job, and the other one, I can't imagine fucking working at the local auto plant, being a photographer in a construction business company guy, Anyway, um, in 1948, Barry married his wife, Thameda Toddy Suggs, with whom he would have four children. See, they got smart and wisened up and didn't fuck as much, didn't have as many kids. And uh, finally, he uh, p- picked up the guitar again, you know, threw his old troublesome ways, you know, away, and he started playing guitar again with his former high school student, Tommy Stevens. And he and Tommy invited him to join his band. And uh, they played at local black nightclubs in St. Louis, and Barry quickly developed a reputation for his lively showmanship. At the end of 1952, he met Johnny Johnson, a local Johnny Johnson. What a fucking, that guy's that guy. You want to stay away from that guy. He was a local jazz pianist, or pianist, I don't know, and joined his band, the Sir John's Trio. Barry revitalized the band and introduced upbeat country numbers, country, told you, country, into the band's repertoire of jazz and pop music. So, like I said, country-hating, country-music-hating motherfuckers doesn't exist without it. Bam, boom, you just got fucking educated. Moving on. Um, in 1955, this is just a cool story, uh, Chuck Berry met Muddy Waters... And Muddy Waters was actually the guy that suggested Barry go meet with Chess Records. Who else was with Chess Records? Howlin' Wolf. And, uh, you know, he actually uh, recorded the song Maybelline a few weeks later. Now, quick, pause the podcast. Uh, Or don't, I don't know why I told you to do that. Uh, Rock nerds out there. Before I say the name of this song, I'm going to ask you real quick. What song is, and it is by Chuck Berry, what song of his is considered... The first rock and roll song ever recorded. Three, two, one. The answer is Maybelline. It's fucking, it's literally historic. It's like, this is why this moment right here is the reason why I did Chuck Berry last. The fact that his song Maybelline is considered the first rock. It literally, re- but here's the thing. It was a rock song and it's considered the first rock song, but it only reached number one on the R&B charts and number five on the pop charts. And uh, what people really liked about it was it was like a unique blend of rhythm and blues. It had country guitar licks and the flavor of Chicago blues and narrative storytelling. He's a great storyteller. He truly is a storyteller of rock and roll music. And, you know, he after that, he started putting out, like, just fucking bangers of songs. Roll over Beethoven. Badass. Too much monkey business. Awesome. Brown-eyed handsome man. Yeah, it's great. Um, but the, my favorite, one of my favorite songs by him is actually the song Carol, the, uh, the, um, 
Rolling Stones have a really good cover of that. I can't recommend it enough. They have. Uh, I would go look up their live album. I believe it is called. What is it called? I'm gonna have to come back to that. It'll be my album recommendation of the night, though. But anyway, with the uh, fuck, I'm gonna have to find that out now. It's driving me crazy. I'm not gonna edit this out either. You're gonna fucking sit here with me and suffer through this as I suffer. I suffer a lot for this damn podcast. You know, this is the time of the podcast where I'm going to fucking turn it on you, alright? I've been sitting here over an hour, and what the hell have you contributed to this podcast? I'm just kidding. But if you do want to contribute to this podcast, we will actually have a Patreon set up on our website. Go And uh, when the website is available, I will drop a link on all social media. You should see right there, that's a fucking plug, everybody. Anyway, oh, that album... The album recommendation, it's a live album by the Rolling Stones, it's called Get Your Yaya's Out, it's fantastic, second song on there is called Carol, go listen to it, anyway, in 1961, oh, this is where we're gonna get fucking very complicated, in 1961, Chuck Berry and his music career were derailed when he was convicted under the Man Act of illegally transporting a woman across state lines for immoral purposes, quote unquote, we all know what that means, dick sucking three years later in 1958 barry had opened club bandstand in the predominantly white business district of downtown st louis the next year while traveling to mexico he had met a 14 year old waitress and sometimes prostitute i love how they threw that caveat in there and brought her back to st louis to work at his club however he fired her only weeks later and when she was then arrested for prostitution Charges were pressed against Barry that ended him sending yet another 20 months in jail. Oh. Whew. I mean, I guess you could say he really got off easily. You know, he got off easy. Because um, I'm going to attempt to describe and explain the Man Act. I may have to use our trusty fucking Google machine to really get it right. But, like, there's only been two people ever to be, like, chart like to have the man like it's 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 called the white slave traffic act and um it was passed in june 25th of 1910 and it was named after the congressman james robert mann of illinois um basically it's a federal law that criminalizes the transportation of any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose so it's it, it's a very because like the whole case and i'm not going to go into the whole case because it's like i said it's very complicated it was not a good time for chuck berry but there's a lot of debate as to like how everything went down with him having criminal charges brought to him because uh there's only been like a couple of people that have ever actually you know Jack Johnson being one of them. Charlie Chaplin was another guy. And then um, and then our boy Chuck Berry here. But, like, the thing is, like, the case and everything, it got, um, it got thrown, like, it got, like, there was a mistrial or something because, like, let's face it, a uh, black man was on trial for something horrible in the early 60s. And um, he had an all-white, an all-white jury and a white judge. And the white, and the judge was apparently saying, like, super, um, like, it was, like, super saying, super, super racist stuff in court. And, like, they literally, like, they had to file a mistrial and, like, replace the judge and the jury. And, um, 
it was really crazy. Like, I'm not defending anything that he did or any of these old fucking guys. All these guys were fucking doing some creepy stuff back then. And, uh, but the thing with the Man Act, it's insane because, uh, Jack Johnson, who was the heavyweight champion of the world, famous black boxer, he's fantastic, go watch his highlights, um, he was prosecuted for bringing a prostitute from Pittsburgh to Chicago, but the motivation for his arrest was public outrage for his marriages to white women, so, you know, there's, it's a lot of, um, it's basically like taking an unmarried woman across state lines, but Chuck Berry was a 14-year-old Mexican prostitute, so, you know, take it as you will. But anyway, I'm not going to get into all that. But apparently this was not, like, this happening to Chuck Berry was not good for him. He, apparently, according to, you know, other artists that he'd be on the road with, they just said that afterwards he just wasn't his fun self anymore. He wasn't, um, like... He just wasn't, like, he wasn't himself. He was mad. He was cold. He didn't hang out and, like, jam with anybody anymore. He was tired. He just wasn't the same anymore. He just literally would go after that prison and It really just after that was strictly recording and playing, performing music. Like, he, you know, and later on in life, whenever he had a little resurgence in the late 80s and everything and whenever, you know, all that. But, like, in this, after, from 1963 on... He was a cold dude, and, like, even a bunch of other guys were quoted as, like, talking about him being different and not being as pleasant to be around. And I imagine going to prison over that some, you know, crazy shit isn't good. And the second time, you know, your career's been derailed because of, like, you know, some bullshit that you've been involved with. So, I imagine it's pretty hard. I remember going to jail. Maybe some of you should go to jail so you can feel how we feel. Anyway, um... But, yeah, like, it just... But I will say this. After... Ch- oh, fun, fun music f- fact for you that you can bring up and ask people, like, would it make them th- sound like you're smart? In 1986, Chuck Berry was the very first inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Boom! You've been educated. Now you can tell people, do you know who the first person ever inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is? And whenever they say something stupid like, uh... Uh, fucking the Rolling Stone. No, and you call him an, an idiot, and then you tell him, nope, it was actually Chuck Berry. And the guy that actually inducted him into the Hall of Fame was his boy. The guy that was up there was his student, his unknown student from the Rolling Stones, Keith Richards. And uh, Chuck Berry, he would perform basically until the day he died. He died in 2017. Uh, old fucking guy, but into th- but he actually um, because he probably knew that his time was coming, um, and I'd recommend you check it out. It's really good. It's vintage Chuck Berry. Um, it's just an album called Chuck. It came out in 2017. It was his last album, and he dedicated it to his wife of so many years, Toddy. And he was actually uh, quoted as saying, you know, he's gonna write it for her because he ain't got much time left or something like that. But it's really good, and it's a cool send off. And um, he passed not long after, and, you know, he's, like, fucking a thousand years old, so I don't need to go into why he, how he died. He probably just, I don't know, the wind blew too hard, and he fucking died one day. But anyway, that's Chuck Berry for you. Oh, rest in peace. All three are dead, of course. <laughs> but, well, ladies and gentlemen, those are our three kings that we are covering for this episode. I want to thank you for tuning in, and hopefully you've taken a little bit, little information from me and are using it to impress your friends i encourage that actually um 
I haven't decided who my next episode is going to be. I'd like to make it as... Uh, I will announce... Sorry. I will announce it on social media, Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. Um, I will announce the next series by next... Uh, after the uh, this episode of The War Room on Saturday that will be recorded. Which, after tonight, hopefully this episode and episode one of Sister Podcast on Killing Time Productions, The War Room will be uh, put available for your listening pleasures on YouTube tonight. There's also a website that I have in the making. Um, it'll be uh, about The War Room, and eventually there will be more. But uh, yeah, this is a... Uh it's been a lot of fun. Um, I'm still gonna learn the hang. I'm still gonna get the hang of it. And I know tonight seemed kind of just like me going over the material and this and that. But and I promise, going forward with these bands, I'm gonna have to do so much more in depth research because I'm gonna go into like I'm gonna find stories and I'm gonna try to really build a timeline. I just really wanted to, you know, give a spotlight to the three guys that I really think help form rock music as we would as would as it would become in the '60s and later become. So. Um, like I said, thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, whenever the, uh, obviously whenever the website comes out, we will have a donation page. Um, this will always and will forever be a free podcast, but, uh, you know, someday I'd like to have a nice fancy studio or something. So maybe y'all could help me out. Send me a dollar, 50 cents. If you send me 50 cents, fuck you. I don't want 50. Just don't send me anything. All right. Just flip me off right now. You, as I'm talking right now, I don't care. Just don't send me anything, but Anyway, I also would like to give a shout out to Killin' Time Productions. Um, just a, a little, a little bit about the concept about what we're doing here at Killin' Time Productions is basically I want to create a content spreading machine. I want people with podcast ideas to come to me, and I want to produce and basically dispense podcast material to people, and I don't want anything from it. Hopefully, I'll have a whole slew of sponsors, and then hopefully one day, my sponsors become your future podcast sponsors, and that's basically the whole concept behind what we're trying to do here at Killing uh, Time Productions. Like I said, we have two shows on it right now, both going to be very, very fun, uh, one very educational, the other, you might not, I would definitely listen to The War Room first, and then this one, because it gets pretty fucking stupid on there, I'm not gonna lie, but anyway, um, thank you for listening, this has been the very first episode of The Ark of Rock, and make sure you're keeping a lookout for the next series, because I will be posting it probably by next Tuesday, a few days before, I will be dropping these, I will be recording these, and dropping these on Fridays, so, like I said, I'll leave you with a little outro music. I'm actually going to play a little of the album. <laughs> I'm going to play some little ri- I'm going to play some. You know what? I'm going to get Howlin' Wolf really I feel like needs to have some music played for him. So I'm going to I'm going to end the show on a little Howlin' Wolf. This is a song called Spoonful. And thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you tune in next week. Thank you if you listen tonight. I know I've said thank you quite a bit, but I'm very thankful. Anyway, good night. Love you all. Fucking rock and party on. I will see you next Friday.